Today's reading is John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. It can be found on page 980 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God of grace, as St. Augustine once wrote, we were made for you, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. It sounds so simple, but there are so many voices in our world that are telling us that we are poor, that we will never be satisfied and giving us directions to sources that offer satisfaction, but ultimately leave us thirsting. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son. Thank you for this story, this lived story that reminds us that this isn't true, that satisfaction 
is quite close. Um, we simply need to ask. And so we ask that you would be here this morning with us as we listen to your word preached. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is Hachiko. Hachiko was a purebred Akita who lived in Tokyo during the 1920s and 30s. Hachiko's owner was a man by the name of Ueno Hidasaburu, a professor of agriculture at the University of Tokyo. The two of them, man and dog, had this routine where every evening when Ueno arrived from work at the Shibuya train station, Hachiko would be there waiting for him, and they would walk home together. However, on one seemingly normal afternoon, Hachiko was waiting in his usual spot, but Ueno did not arrive with his usual train, nor did he arrive on the next one or the next one. Because sadly, before he could come home to see Hachiko one last time, Professor Ueno had died suddenly and unexpectedly of a brain hemorrhage. The interesting thing about the story, though, is that even after his master was gone, Hachiko still continued to come to that train station and wait for him. He did this every day until he died in 1935. Today, Hachiko is lovingly remembered by Japanese and recent leaders of American movie with Richard Gere, so his story is known to some people in America and although his story might inspire us and remind us of why we love dogs so much, if you look at it from Hachiko's perspective, this is pretty much a tragic story. Because if you could imagine, what if you had to come back to a place day after day and expect the one you love to arrive? But at the end of the day, you're alone because they're not coming back. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. If we were to see a human do what Hachiko did, continuing a routine, continuing to come back to a place, acting as if things had not really changed and that this was just temporary, and that all they had to do was just keep doing what they were doing and wait, we would think it cruel to leave them be we would tell them that, no, you can't do this. You have to move on. And hopefully we do this compassionately. Because when it comes to bereavement, we have to move on. And when we mourn the loss of those we love, the hard fact of the finality of death, at least on this side of the resurrection, it forces us to move on. From a pragmatic point of view, it accomplishes little to mourn forever. But just as time will take those whom we love from us, time also forces us to face other kinds of loss. For example, the loss of opportunities, the loss of relationships, close relationships, the loss of wealth and treasure, the loss of physical beauty or health, maybe even loss of faith in people or institutions, or God. But this kind of loss is different. Here, okay, good, it's gone. Here there is no death certificate. There's no obituary in the paper. 
There's no cold body to look at. And this gives us just enough ambiguity to ask, are these things really lost forever? We can't be entirely sure that they are. And so this ambiguity, it gives us maybe just enough hope to keep coming back to certain places, hoping to find the thing that we have lost, hoping that maybe this time, whatever or whomever we have been waiting for will finally come back to us. I have a couple of imaginative examples like I do every time. So you might know, you actually might know people like this, like the person who goes back to a job every morning that she doesn't really like at all, but, and she isn't really sure she should be in this job anymore, but she keeps coming back because this is the path she chose for herself. And maybe she just hangs in there, things will get better. Maybe, you know, a person who is stuck in the past and who behaves and makes decisions as if she were still in college or if she were still a single person. And while that worked for her while she was at that stage of life, it, is, it has become devastating to her now as an adult of a family. But she holds on to it because maybe she's hoping that the real world, this adult life, isn't as charmless as it seems. Maybe, you know, a person who comes back to places on the internet, places that offer him an endless selection of shiny objects, shiny bodies, easy information and vicarious experiences. And he comes back because he feels as if his actually lived life it's just so impoverished when it comes to culture, to knowledge, to love, to sex, experience. And so he uses these digital substitutes to make up for what he lacks. These are, the, these are examples of the kinds of habits, addictions, and tendencies we have. These emotional and spiritual places that we keep coming back to. And I think at best we are ambivalent about them, you know, we, we are who we are, we do what we do, you know, it's just the way it is. But at worst, we are deeply ashamed of these places. We feel like there is something wrong of us every time we come back. So the result is that we tend to hide our struggles from each other with silence, deception, with password protection. And this never-ending journey, the back and forth, it can be a lonely one because of this hiddenness, and maybe we prefer it be that way. But what this text invites us to think about is, what would happen if Jesus were to suddenly meet us in the middle of our journey, in the middle of this back and forth? In our text from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Jesus arrives at the Samaritan city of Sychar, and he collapses at this well, tired from exhaustion. And his disciples have gone away to get food, um, so they can't help him. But fortunately, he sees this woman come his way. Maybe she can help him. So Jesus asks her, quite politely in the Greek, for some water. So to us, this interaction seems innocent. But if you were an early reader of this gospel, you would have seen you would have sensed that there is something very wrong with this image. 
Because for one thing, Jesus is a man and she is a woman. He is a Jew. She is a Samaritan who, in the eyes of religious Jews of the time, were heretics, which is what makes the parable of the Good Samaritan so shocking. Jesus should not even be talking to her, much less subordinating himself to her by asking her for water. This is not a friendly request. This is him almost, maybe not groveling, but saying, you have what I need. Would you have mercy on me? And she could have easily just given him the water, right? But the irony of the situation, all this cultural baggage, it was just too rich. You know, and maybe she was just, well, you you get a sense of this, but maybe you just get this sense that she is just that type of person who likes to really stick it to people. You know, she's, and so her response is like, why should I give you this water? You know, given the gulf between you and me, how can you even ask me for water? You have to wonder, like I just said, why couldn't she have just given him the water? Why couldn't she have just let it go? You know, why couldn't she just let this enmity between Jew and Samaritan let, her, let it go? You know, well, instead she decides to engage Jesus in a somewhat sassy manner. So now all bets are off. And so Jesus' reply is, okay, I'll admit that it might be weird for me to ask you for water, but from where I'm standing, I think it's kind of weird that you haven't asked me for water, for the living water. Oh, Jesus. And of course, this doesn't make any sense to the Samaritan woman because the whole, this whole episode started because Jesus said, give me water. And so she's obviously skeptical of what Jesus just said. So she says to him, you don't even have a bucket to get water from this well. What skills do you have to just produce a source of living water? Can you, you know, just magically make a spring come out of the ground? Okay, so touche. But... But Jesus' response, you know, instead of just answering the question, he just gets more obscure. And he says, this is a different kind of water, my friend. If you drink this water, you will never be thirsty again. If you drink this water, you will actually become a source of water for others, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I had such a hard time thinking about this image. It makes me feel guilty to think of this much water in a time of drought. Well, that's its own thing. But if you've been going to church for a while, you know, you're, you're listening to this, this dialogue, and you might be following it pretty well. You know, you're getting all the, the metaphors and symbolisms that Jesus is using, you know, this water. You know, I, I know what the water is. But this was a time before the invention of Christianese. This was before Christianese became a common American dialect. So most likely, this is all going over the top of her head. Most likely, none of this makes sense to her. But here's the amazing thing. Even though she doesn't know what's on offer, even though she doesn't even know who this person is, she still has, she's still willing enough to ask for this water. 
She's still willing enough to ask for it. So at verse 15, she finally gives in and asks him, Please, sir, give me some of this living water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here. The title of my sermon. Hilda, could you put up the next slide with the pyramid? Okay. Um, the psychologist Abraham Maslow once theorized that people's felt needs could be organized into a hierarchy, and he called it the hierarchy of needs. Um, so at the bottom of this hierarchy, you have physiological needs, and then after that, safety and security, and then loving, belonging, self-esteem, and then at the very top, you have this thing called self-actualization, whatever that means. And the way it's visualized here as a pyramid, I think that's just the way it is. And it's interesting because, because it's visualized as a pyramid, there's an implied scarcity as you go up the pyramid and it tapers off. Up to this point, the Samaritan woman, um, I think she's still pretty much working with a literal image of water, H2O. And even though she's assented to getting this living water, I think she, it's, you know, it's just water, maybe a very unusual form of living water, like indoor plumbing, you know, which is way before its time, but still water. But Jesus, on the other hand, seems to be hinting that this is more, um, this is about more than just quenching her thirst. If you look at this pyramid, I think, you know, most of us have our physiological needs met. You know, we have we can get food, we can get water and drought notwithstanding. You know, we have apartments or houses. None of us are naked or in rags. And apparently you were well rested enough to show up this morning. But and, and you know, maybe you know, and many of you you have you can even go another level up, safety and security. You you have some of these things. But I think as you go higher up the pyramid, you start to sense that you might be lacking in some areas. This is a very old idea, and I don't know if professional psychologists still hold to this theory yet, but I think it's a very useful image because um, in many ways, human beings are like these containers that need to be filled constantly. Three times a day, we need to eat you know, ten times a day we need water, we need to be clothed, we need our leisure time, we need our fun things to do. But even after these needs have been met, you know, it seems like we, it's not enough. We need more. We sense that what we might be missing are these things at the top of the pyramid. I am constantly sensing my own lack of self-actualization. But that's just me. Um, and the problem is, even though we sense this lack, we don't really know how to fill the lack. We don't know how to access these things within ourselves, within relationships, within you know, our economic system, within the institutions you know, of work and education, the systems, these unspoken rules of privilege and reward. We don't we don't know how to access these things from these wells that people have set up for us. You know, for example, maybe we don't know how to get people to like us. We don't know how to find someone willing to marry us. 
and we just don't know how to do these things. We don't know how to achieve success in a system that seems rigged for us to fail or at least settle for mediocrity. So we make up for what we lack by getting more of what we can get easily. I don't know how to get real intimacy, so maybe I'll just settle, settle for the physiological need of getting sexual release. I don't know how to feel good about myself, so maybe I'll just settle for buying more things, safety and security. I don't know how to believe in or know anything about God, so maybe I'll just settle for placing my faith in people or politics, philosophy, or science. I don't know how to help my children thrive, so I'll just settle for them being busy and distracted. We settle for things that come easy. And on the surface, it looks as if we're simply trying to get our bottom of the pyramid. But, you know, maybe it's really about something more. What is, you know, but what is this something more? Okay, so getting back to the packet or passage, and you can pop the slide. Um, at the beginning of this passage, you notice that the time of occurrence was around noon. It's also implied that this woman came alone. Again, any reader, any early reader of the story would know that there's something really odd about this picture. Women would not come to get water in the middle of the day. It's just too hot. And they would not come alone, which we still see today in some countries because it's a safety risk. There's something very unusual about this woman. And so after Jesus, or sorry, after the Samaritan woman asked Jesus for this living water, which again she still thinks is H2O, Jesus tells her basically, sure, I'll give you this water. But first, why don't you go back and bring your husband here? I don't have a husband, she says. Indeed, that is an understatement. She, she does not have a husband, and her past is quite complicated. Five husbands, and she's living now with a man who is not her husband. I think a lot of people tend to make this passage a morality, um, morality tale, you know, about, I don't know, just anything, but I don't think that's what it's about. If you look into the background of this culture, the moral issues, the moral status of her marital history is much more complicated than it might look. And I don't have the time to go into this, unfortunately. But regardless, in the eyes of her community, this woman was a failure. You know, she failed at something. We don't know. A shameful failure of a woman. And so when you see it in this light, her words to Jesus, her words at verse 15 reveal so much more. On the surface, it seems like she was just asking for water so she could quench her thirst. But what she was really asking for was to be del- delivered from her shame. If you, read the, excuse me, if you read between the lines, what she was really saying is, Sir, please give me this water so I don't have to keep coming here and constantly be reminded of my shame. Give me this water so I don't have to keep coming here anymore. But she doesn't quite say it that way. She keeps it all in. Um, you know, it's, it's really odd how, even though Jesus seems to know so much about this woman, her response is so muted. Um, 
she, he airs all this dirty laundry about her, and all she can come up with is, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. <laughs> if, imagine if I somehow knew your dirty laundry, and I just aired it out here. Would you be as cool a customer as this woman? And that's why this story is so interesting. There's just something very unique about this woman's personality. Um, the evasiveness of her responses to Jesus, the way she keeps changing the topic and hiding her feelings. This is a real person. This is a real story. And, you know, even, even to, the, to the part we cut off, um, even now she still has her guard down. She's not, she doesn't really quite get it, not yet at least. But still... There's just enough there, just enough there for her to say this one last thing to Jesus. And we skipped more stuff, but at the very end of this passage in verse 26 or so, or not right before verse 26, she tells Jesus, you know, all this talk about living water, you know, about worshiping in spirit and truth, I'll admit it doesn't make much sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me. But I know that a Messiah is coming, and when he comes, everything will make sense. To which Jesus replies, the one talking to you right now, the one talking to you right now, ego eimi, ego eimi in Greek, I am. The very name of God, the name that was revealed to Moses, when God met him in the burning bush in Exodus 3. So even though this woman didn't really know what she was asking for, she didn't know who she was talking to, did you catch that she doesn't even know his name? She leaves not even knowing his name. Because she was willing to simply ask for the living water, this woman came face to face with God. There's a lot more to the story, um, so I would recommend, I would give you your homework, which is to read John 4 at some point during the week to see what happens next, because it's quite a, quite, a, quite a good story. You know. John Calvin, in his book, his magnum opus, The Institute of Christian Religion, makes two very well-known claims, theological claims, but they, but they probably predate him, I'm sure. The first claim was that knowledge of self begins with knowledge of God and vice versa. That knowledge of God begins with knowledge of self. The second claim is that, that all that we can really know or say about God is like baby talk. Uh, there's this one pastor, he's like, you know, the highest heights of our theology is like goo goo gaga to God. It's like baby talk. And this, even, if you, even if you have a PhD in theology like this man did, you know, it's kind of like asking, it's kind of like we're babies and we're trying to understand quantum physics. You know, we, we have this Bible, we have this tradition, this reformed tradition, but God still remains a mystery to us, most of us and most of the time. And so if you put these two claims together, Calvin is basically saying 
that it is really, really hard to know much about ourselves and God. You know, can you put that syllogism together? That's, 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 that's the result. And for me, this rings so true. And I'm sure it rings true for a lot of you. And, you know, maybe that's why, maybe that's why we're so willing to accept simple ideas, you know, from the media, from corporations and marketers, from spiritual gurus, from our friends and from our families, when they have the answers to what really makes us tick, to what humans are really about, what we want, what we lack, what really satisfies our deepest needs. It's too easy to just take these simple answers because, like Calvin just said, we don't know. We'll take anything. We'll take what we can get. But the tragic thing about this is if you listen to these voices, their basic solution is, if you want to be happy, then here's what you got to do. You have to dig deep. You have to dig deep. You need to find this well and dig deep and draw yourself to find this human satisfaction. Jesus says, no, no. That's not how it works, man. <laughs> I, like, I like thinking of Jesus as, as a bro. It's not how it works, man. I, mean, just, I don't know. <laughs> It's not how it works. This is how it works. I will give you the source of your satisfaction, this living water, and all you have to do is ask. Later on in John chapter 7, I believe, we learn that this living water and this metaphor is the Spirit of God. And I, you know, I bring that up, but to explore the implications of that statement require a lifetime of study and reflection. So I'll just leave it there. But, but this is a good starting point. Even if you don't think you know much about yourself or about God or about Jesus or this Holy Spirit that I just brought up, or all these complicated doctrines of Christianity, or what it means to be a Christian. Even if you feel so impoverished in your soul and so ashamed of your addictions and the places you keep coming back to, even if you don't really know what it means to experience God, maybe you've never experienced God, even if words like grace and hope and faith just seem like meaningless abstractions, don't, don't let this stop you from asking. Just ask. Just, just ask. It's, it's that simple, I think. We try to make things more complicated than they actually are. At first, the Samaritan woman, she didn't know anything. She didn't, like I said, she didn't know who she was talking to, whom she was talking to, or what she was asking for. But she asked. She just, just asked. Seek out people who are also asking. Seek out people who are also pursuing this living water and pursue it together. Seek out people who already drink from this living water every day and learn from them. Learn what these things mean. After Professor Oeno, okay, not yet. After Professor Oeno died, so getting back to the Hachiko story, after Professor Ueno died, and you know Hachiko 
was coming back to his station. Some of the people, some of the people, especially the workers at that station, didn't really like this. They didn't like having this strange dog showing up every day and just sitting there, you know. Um, I guess that's understandable. But, but, the, but after a while, someone was curious enough to know about Hachiko and look into, look into him, find out what this dog was about, and he turned it into a new story. And so as people learned about Hachiko, their attitudes began to change. Um, so instead of people being suspicious of this dog, they started to leave him treats and water so he could stay fed and hydrated while he waited. This community formed around him. And so this once lonely dog, this seemingly tragic dog, was now neither of these things because grace had found him. During Jesus' time, um, most religious Jews would never set foot in Samaria. If a religious Jew wanted to go from Judea to Galilee, they would go around Samaria. That's how much they did not like them. But in verse 4 of this passage, it says that Jesus had to go to Samaria. Why? Technically, he didn't have to go to Samaria, so why did he have to go to Samaria? He had to go because it was the Father's will for him. It was his mission. It was the Father's will that he meet this woman. Because what if Jesus never arrived? What if he never met this woman? Could you imagine that this nameless woman would have kept coming back to that well in the hot sun, her shame forever making her a nameless person. And like I said at the beginning, it is easier to stay hidden than to be found. What if nobody cared about Hachiko and just thought he was this annoying stray dog? What would have happened? So here's an application. There are people in this city, maybe in this room, maybe people you know, many people you don't know who are in places that you might not really want to go to. And I don't mean just literal neighborhoods, but also places of vulnerability and honesty that we just don't want to go there. But think about the consequences. You know, what, what, what happens to these people? Are they destined to keep coming back to their own wells of shame? You know, are they destined to just keep doing this forever? I think these people, wherever they are, whomever, whoever they are, these people desperately need to know about the living water that quenches all thirst and wells up to eternal life. So brothers and sisters in Christ, when the Lord calls you, will you go to them? Will you tell them? Will you show them? this living water. Okay, so let's end, let's finish the saga of Hachiko. Hilda, could you put the last slide? All right, so this is a statue of Hachiko. Um, so here's the story. In 1934, before Hachiko died, the year before Hachiko died, um, a bronze statue was actually erected in his honor. 
You know, so this community that formed around this dog, they just love this dog so much that they want to honor him. But that's not this statue. Um, as you know, there was a war, Second World War, and the original statue was melted down to make ammunition. However, in 1948, which was, what, two years after VJ Day, Amid the rubble of Tokyo, this new statue was erected. And um, actually, the, the artist who made this sculpture was the son of the original sculptor, which is kind of interesting. And today, this statue, this picture we have here, is a popular meeting space, a meeting spot for um, people who live in Tokyo. And I really like this story because the statue, you know, the statue that was destroyed used for God knows what in the service of war. It was restored in the middle of a city that would lay in ruins. So to me, so to me, the statue, it's a, it's a reminder of the gospel. It's a reminder of our gospel hope and resurrection. And it's all because grace found Hachiko. Grace found Hachiko through these people who cared for him and loved him, and for people who still care for him and love him today. Jesus found this woman. She sought, he sought her out, and he cared for her in his you know, own weird Jesus way. And today, Jesus continues to find lost people and care for them. But the thing is, he does it through people who are also lost and hurt people like ourselves. It's not ideal, but that's just the way it is. We will always struggle. We will always, you know, possibly right to leave the door. We might go right back down to that place, you know, that metaphorical place. But that's okay. That's okay. Um, but at the very least... Even if you go back to these places, keep coming back to the Lord. Keep going back to this church. And, you know, keep coming back to that table, even though it's empty right now. Keep coming back to each other. Keep coming back because for us, for people, because for us, the Master is not gone. He has always been nearby. And He is coming back soon. Let us pray. Father, um, it is so hard to just keep digging these wells, drawing water from these wells that others have given to us. Maybe it's just as hard to come to you and ask for the living water. I don't know. It's, It's hard to break these patterns. It's hard aside our pride. It's hard to put aside this, the sassiness and the dismissiveness and just, you know, the questioning we have when it comes to faith. But Lord, Lord, would you soften our hearts and make us more receptive to this free gift of grace you offer us? And Lord, in time, would we become sources of living water for others, for the people in this church and for the people in this city? Um, We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.